This is the All About 80s Music Podcast with John Mysick and Steve Ojello. Hey, this is Steve Ojello, and I'm here with John Mysick. Hey, Steve. Hey, John. This week, John and I are back again with our original mixtapes from the 80s. We've dug deep into the bins and dusted off two cassettes that have a similar theme, both celebrating one of the most loved artists of the greatest decade. This is going to be a lot of fun, so let's not waste any time and get right into it. So, John... Here we are again with two different mixtapes, both made in the 80s and revived for this episode. Both your mixtape and mine, celebrating George Michael and Wham. Would you, sir, please pull the cassette out of your Walkman and give us a little background on it? You know, Steve, there are a few artists with a more complicated legacy than George Michael. A guy who who sort of straddled two worlds, the bubblegum pop of Wham! from about 1982 to 1984. A great run of three records with some priceless hits in there. Bad Boys, Club Tropicana, Wham! Rap, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, Careless Whisper, Everything She Wants, right down to... um, Edge of Heaven and I'm Your Man. Before he folded up tents on the band he founded with his childhood friend Andrew Ridgely and embarked on a solo career, uh, releasing probably two of the great solo records of the later part of the 1980s, Faith in 1987, and then Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1 in 1989-1990. Michael was one of these guys. He always strove for artistic credibility, never really satisfied with his work, and never really quite found his level going into the 1990s and the 2000s. Unfortunately, he was taken from us altogether too soon. On Christmas Day, 2016, only into his 50s, probably not a little bit older than we are right now, but we've been left with this incredible legacy of music. So what are the first couple of songs on your mixtape? All right, I'm going to move backwards, Steve, into uh, into Michael's catalog and go with One More Try off of Faith in 1987. Michael said that it was a personal song for him and close to his heart. Uh, It was about my attitude of coming out my last relationship into this new one when I was pretty unwilling to be open to anything. It's a very not George Michael song if you're used to if you're used to his work. Very understated. There's some bass. There's some uh, gospel organ. The video of him famously standing alone in a in a hotel room, as it turns out, in Sydney. You know, just sort of shot in silhouette for the, through the whole way through, and him gradually sort of coming to terms with the with the person who he is. It is hard to come out of that song, Steve, and not be profoundly moved. And God knows, every time I come back to it, it still hits. To me right between the eyes and that's the word i would use to describe it. it it's an extremely moving song an extremely moving vocal track and i i love the simple yet effective drum machine pattern that's accented by dion estes's bass work which which i believe was a fretless in that song if I'm not. that's right no symbols in that track by the way just the kick and the snare He's such an iconic singer, such an iconic figure in the pop world that I, I actually forgot that he wrote most of those songs himself. Um, well, I think, Steve, though, I think you're right about that. Um, Michael was at, at the height of his songwriting powers um, when Faith came out in 1987. Uh, he told Australia's Countdown television TV show that he wrote and recorded this song in just eight hours. Wow. From, from conception to the you know, where they hit stop on the tape, eight hours to produce that song. You know, it's important to remember that George Michael was pretty much single-handedly responsible for everything that Wham! did. From the writing and the recording to the producing, he was a notorious control freak. Andrew originally was in the band, but did precious little, sparking a thousand punchlines in the, in the 1980s. 
Michael, when he was focused, when he was at his best, could produce some of the best pop that was out there. And certainly one more try, which clocks in at nearly six minutes, but doesn't feel that way, um, is is one of those songs. George has been such an iconic pop singer over the years that I actually forgot that he wrote those songs. Part of the reason is you don't see him with a guitar or a keyboard a lot of the times. And he was never a virtuoso musician either, which was the funny thing about it. He had a rudimentary mastery of keyboards. He had a rudimentary mastery of guitars. Last year, the journalist James Galvin put out the most comprehensive George Michael biography there is. It's called George Michael, A Life. He talked about him singing the horn parts to his horn players because he didn't know how to write notation. The music was all up there. It was all inside of him. He found a way to transfer it, but then he brought in these extraordinary players like the bassist Jan Estes and the trumpet player uh, Roddy Lormer, who really brought the songs to life. Awesome. Your number one pick. So my mixtape is simply called The George Michael Mix, and it was made in late 1987, the same year that his Faith album was released. Faith was his first solo album, The record firmly established him as a true solo artist. It went on to sell 20 million albums worldwide and remains one of the best-selling albums of all time. Like all mixtapes, I took great care to carefully sequence the order of these songs. So let me get into the first one. My first song is Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. So the reason I chose this song first on the mixtape was because it established Wham! as a supergroup across the world. It was a very important song that kicked off George Michael's career as well as Wham!'s career and allowed for the hits that would follow for the next 15 years or so. This song actually blew up on MTV in 1984. And by the way, that video actually has 432 million views on YouTube right now. And it was uploaded 13 years ago. So, I mean, that's that's huge, hugely popular song. Let me run through what I remember as my first impression when I originally heard the song and watched the video for the first time on MTV. So I'm listening to the first few bars and I get the impression that it's a cheesy, fabricated pop song with no merit. That ridiculous jitterbug comes in and then enter the lyrics. You put the boom boom into my heart. And there again, I get the sense that it's a throwaway candy pop track. But then the pre-chorus starts. But something's bugging me. Something ain't right. My best friend told me what you did last night. And all of a sudden, the song starts to get credible. And the chorus starts to blow up big. And the song progressively just gets better from there. And I'm caught up in the fun of it. In addition to the song, the video had so many complementary elements to it, tying into the overall success of that song, making it historic. There was George and Andrew's iconic black and white Choose Life shirt, the background singers matching black and white shirts that said go-go on them. Then everyone was decked out in fluorescent shirts, sweaters, and gloves. Then it's all glow-in-the-dark attire and makeup. Shirley and Pepsi, the iconic duo known for their name and for being part of the group's early success, both easily identifiable and loved by fans. And the video showed the camaraderie between the members of the band that contributed to the overall good vibe feel of the song. It showed a young, happy George Michael before the famous lifestyle got to him. And there was no doubt in everyone's mind when they watched this video that George Michael was destined to be a star. You just knew it. So the song was a big, big launch for Wham's career and the platform which started George Michael on his journey to becoming one of the biggest pop stars of all time. 
This is one of those songs, a great pop tune that starts out with uh, from the quirkiest of beginnings. Um, the story goes that Andrew originally was sleeping late one morning and his mother left him a note to wake me up before you go, go. And oh, wow. George and George saw that and he kind of went from there. And this is just a classic piece of like 60s girl group pastiche. You know, you can draw a straight line from here to like the Ronettes or the Shirelles or, or, or whatever. And George Michael, being a student of pop music, being a student of Northern Soul Records, was able to sort of access that tradition to bring this song to life. And again, and it's one of these songs, again, that came very easily. You know, I think the song was written and recorded in almost no time flat. There was that iconic video um, that everyone sort of recognizes now. The the story, the account around that is, is a very long night, them bringing fans in and everyone being exhausted by the end of it. But George going out very graciously and meeting with the fans afterward, showing his magnanimity toward them. And of course, you've got that fantastic line, you make the sunshine brighter than Doris Day, which reportedly Doris Day herself loved. You know, there was also sort of a nod there to the gay community. Uh, Michael was then not out, but uh, people who saw that video uh, knew exactly what he was talking about when he dropped the Doris Day reference. I mean, just a great pop song, really, from, from end to end. And again, an example sort of Michael's mastery of the craft. Awesome. What's the next song in your mixtape? Mine is a quirky mixtape. I'm focusing on solo stuff. I'm focusing on lesser known wham tracks, lesser appreciated wham tracks. So I'm going to zip over to Edge of Heaven from their Swan Song LP from 1986. This is where you see Michael really making that transition away from bubblegum pop towards a more adult sound. The album was called The Final. They performed to 72,000 fans at Wembley Arena in June 1986 to bid farewell. This song, again, a pretty long one it's five minutes long depicting uh, emotional and physical frustration within a relationship elton john guesting on piano on that track uh, wow. you can, if you close your eyes you can hear that acapella bit at the beginning and Dionysus's bass coming in underneath of it michael later said that the lyrics were deliberately overtly sexual particularly in the first verse again that was him making that break away from wham's teeny bopper audience straining towards something a bit more adult and kind of hinting towards what was going to come with what we now know as the Faith LP. I think that whole record, the final for me, there are darker songs in there. I know we're going to delve into some of them like Battle Stations and Blue and and Different Corner. Uh, It was such a departure from that bright, sunshiny pop of make it big just a year or two earlier um, and again it really signaled Michael's transition away from that kind of pop songwriting into something a bit more substantive and it's probably the wham record that I love the most and you know what's funny about the edge of heaven which I think was their first single from that album it sort of channeled that really good vibe energy from wake me up before you go go you know, it, it had a similar vibe and energy to it. So I, it was funny that even though it was a darker album, they came out with a very sort of happy, feel-good song, although the lyrics were a little dark on that. It also did mask some some lingering tensions between Michael and Andrew Ridgely, who was not happy that George was calling time on the band. He thought they had maybe one more record in them, but Michael had made it clear that he was done and that he was ready to move on. We, we all knew George was going to be a big star, and that was the end of Wham. We all knew it, all the fans. All right, your picks. All right, so so let me get out my mixtape here and just look at the second song. If you can hear the um, plastic case is a bit broken here, but looking at it, I'm going to say that my second song on this tape is Faith. And the reason I juxtaposed Wake Me Up Before You Go Go with Faith coming in at second 
was, like I said a moment ago about Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, Faith was just as important as a song as Wake Me Up because this was a song that really established George Michael as a solo artist. It was actually the second single off the Faith album. We know I Want Your Sex was the first. There was a lot of controversy around that song and video. And I won't get into that because it's not the song on my list. But after the whole I Want Your Sex debacle, the single Faith It was more mainstream and it held the number one position on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for four weeks. It was the number one single of the year in the U.S. in 1988. And the song also reached number one in Australia and Canada and was number two on the U.K. singles chart. So it was the song that really launched his solo career. And I remember that video like I'm sure you do. Most of the blonde frosting was out of his hair at that point. He had the word revenge sewed on to his jacket, uh, which was a response probably to the criticism of I Want Your Sex. And he had those dark sunglasses and jeans on, which became his signature look for a while. If you remember how that video started, the jukebox played a clip of I Want Your Sex, probably just to piss off his critics. Then Wham's Freedom is played on the organ as an intro to the song. And when that intro was over... George started playing his acoustic guitar and singing, and then the rest was George Michael history. You know, so Steve, here's my memory of that song. It's August 1988. I'm at the Hartford Civic Center in Hartford, Connecticut. I had camped out to get tickets to that date on the Faith Tour, and they had this really elaborate stage set. It was uh, sort of big grids, made, made four walls, made a box around the stage, and you start hearing those organ chords come up, the, the stage set starts moving away. The crowd is building to this insane, oh, insane frenzy. The lights come on. There's George. That Let's face it, he ripped off the guitar riff from Bo Diddley. That is a complete Bo Diddley knockoff. That starts playing. Dion Estes' bass comes up underneath of it, and the crowd completely explodes. It was, it was this masterful manipulation of a crowd's emotions. Again, going to Michael's skills as a showman. Um, the song, as you correctly point out, is really a, a, him deliberately breaking away from the past in Wham, from the singer that he was before he's got the stubble he's got that dangly cross got the dangly cross earring you know he's got the he's wearing the hat you know later on all of us would try to kind of channel uh that george michael vibe circa 88 89 you know we cover the song in the thompson triplets the you know the 80s cover band i've talked about quite a lot that i play in during the course of the show and there are few songs that will get a crowd moving than faith when we play that one it is a guaranteed floor filler again it's rockabilly pastiche but it absolutely works. And that's not a song you hear a lot of bands cover these days. You know, even the 80s bands, you don't hear them cover Faith. So. It's so much It's so much fun to play. Dionysus' bass really is the glue that holds that song together. It's got a great hook. You know, the chord changes, the song sounds simple, but the chord changes are actually deceptively complicated. Uh, there's a lot going on in the sonic, sonic architecture of that song. And that speaks to George Michael's songwriting. Exactly. I can't believe you saw the, I can't believe you saw him on the Faith Tour. Talk that about is, is one of the four or five best shows that I've ever seen. It was just extraordinary. 
Um, I, I, I will say this. I, my teachers will not probably hear this, but I did skip school to give out for tickets for that. Me and a bunch of UConn students lined up outside the Civic Center waiting for our tickets in the cold, cold of a January morning for a show that was still eight months away at that point. It sounds like from uh, the past podcast, that's not the first time you skip school for a concert. So, you know, when you're when you're hardcore about music, you do what you, you do, what you do for what you love. Awesome. Um, all right, Steve, I'm going for my number three pick. I'm going to zoom back to Wham's debut LP, 1982, Fantastic, for Club Tropicana. Just it, an amazing bit of escapist pop, a video shot on the island of Ibiza, George and Andrew playing airline pilots, uh, Shirley Holloman and Pepsi Damak, the two background singers playing flight attendants that they're crushing on and chasing around the island. Andrew originally pardoned me in his memoir, said this was really the highlight of a teenage fantasy holiday escape. It was based on so many package tours that uh, English youth used to take to Ibiza back in those days. So it really did resonate. The hotel they stayed at, Elton John and Freddie Mercury famously stayed there. The vibe of the song, trivia fans, was nicked from Burn Rubber, Why You Want to Hurt Me by the Gap Band. Oh, wow. Uh, George Michael being the student of pop music that he is. And then Steve, famously, this is um, where George Michael actually came out to... uh, Andrew originally, they'd finished taping the video, um, and George called Andrew in his hotel room and said, hey, could you come down here? Andrew came down. He was Shirley Holloman was already in the hotel room. She, of course, already knows. Um, and he tells his best friend since childhood that he's gay. And, and Andrew uh, just sort of famously says, well, that's a bit of a surprise. And that was the end of that. But this, you know, Steve, that first Wham record, I think, sometimes gets overshadowed by the monster success of making big and in a lot of ways that's justified the the songwriting on make it big was a lot more mature and a lot more accomplished but this was wham when they were still kind of dangerous and were still kind of a club band and just they were dressed in leather for you know for bad boys and young guns go for it and just some really great disco really great dance tunes on that first record um it was the one i came to the last of the three because i kind of dismissed it but that ended up being my mistake because there's um, some surprisingly great songs on that lp It's awesome. All right. I'm going to take you back now to number three on my cassette tape here. Monkey. Probably my favorite of all George Michael songs. And I would say you too, maybe. That's right up there. It was recorded in 1987, but released off the Faith album. It charted in the summer of 88. And it's really a good representation of the sound that was happening in the late 80s. Right. If you listen to the music in that song, it's got a little sound from Pebbles Mercedes Boy in there. It's got a little Albie Shore's Night and Day in there. A little Johnny Kemp's Just Got Paid. A little J.J. Fad Supersonic. Very 1988. It's a great dance vibe, but surprisingly dark lyrics about his friend who had a drug and alcohol problem. Monkey became George's sixth solo single to reach the number one in the U.S. and the fourth single to hit number one from the Faith album. It was great to have been 17 years old in 1988, and I enjoyed playing the song on keyboards in one of my bands. By the way, Mysick, we always talk about how we prefer the music to the earlier half of the decade. But while this song was charting, let me list off a bunch of other songs that were trending on the charts in the summer of 88. There was New Sensation, Nothing But A Good Time, Foolish Beat by Your Girl Debbie Gibson, Hold On To The Nights, I'll Be Sure is Night and Day, Steve Winwood's Roll With It, Lost in You by Rod Stewart, Jane Whelan's Rush Hour, Sign Your Name Around My Heart, 
together forever. Beds are burning. I don't want to go on with you like that. And simply irresistible. You know, looking at the list of what was charting in that summer, you and me probably have to revisit our thoughts on the late 80s. You got me on that one. I do. I mean, I do have distinct memories of 87, 88, producing some really great records. Um, in Excess's Kick came out that year. Robert Palmer's Riptide, as you correctly point out, Debbie Gibson's debut LP, Out of the Blue, which I went back and listened to the other evening for the first time in a long time because I she danced across my Instagram feed and she's just this effervescent presence on Instagram, even at the age of 52, Miss Deborah Gibson is. Again, Steve, back to your point about Monkey. Um, this is one of those songs I remember live from the Faith Tour. You know, an, a deeper album cut a successful single but a deeper album cut nonetheless that really just blew up the crowd as well really really a great hook really well produced really well played some deeply serious subject matter again pointing towards uh, michael's skills as a songwriter not one of the george michael songs that really gets a lot of fanfare these days i think it's overshadowed by a lot of his other bigger hits but still one of my favorite songs in his catalog all right, for my number four pick, I'm going. Uh, I'm going completely sideways on you, Steve. This is a George Michael song, kind of. It's "Heaven Help Me" uh, by Dionysus from Dionysus' 1988 debut solo LP, Spell. Michael wrote, co-wrote produced and sang the backing vocal on this. He thought that Dion Estes, his, his longtime touring bass player, was supposed to be a big star. Uh, he had Estes open the shows on the Faith tour. Um, I do remember Dion coming out in a red suit and uh, doing his thing and hearing Heaven Help Me and having George come out and sing the backing vocal early and the crowd just going bananas for what was to come. The record, unfortunately, did not do particularly well. It's kind of a footnote to 1980s pop music, which is unfortunate because there's some really great Earth, Wind and Fire uh, style soul songs and, and disco songs in there. Dion is just, again, taken from us too early as well a couple of years back. Um, one of the great pop bass players in the 1980s, right up there with Guy Pratt and Pino Palladino. You know, the man knew his way around a groove and um, Heaven Help Me was uh, certainly an example of that. I was really happy when Dion came out on his own for the song and for his album. It's always nice when the backing musicians that you really love come out and go on their own. So right, I'm your turn. All right, I'm looking on my cassette here. Next, I have Kissing a Fool, one of the best uh, George Michael songs, right? We've said before in previous podcasts that in the 80s, you could pretty much get away with anything musically. And this song was no exception. It was a tune that pop stations played, but also jazz stations played. Soft rock stations were playing it, as well as grocery stores and elevators. It seemed that for a couple of years, you can walk into the song in the most surprising places. It was really George showing his versatility as a songwriter, and it also features his signature airy vocal sound. And by the way, his vocal on this song was recorded in one take. It was written about a relationship that he had with someone who couldn't handle the situation because he was George Michael. George said of this song, it was very much a late night giving up feeling. But just listening to that melodic structure in the vocal melody... I would say that this song is a good candidate for universities to use in songwriting classes. It just exudes excellence. 
Yes, this, Steve, this is where you see Michael trying to slot himself into the tradition of the great vocal stylists, Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett. It's got that it's got that smoothness of the performance to it. And I mean, you're quite correct. I mean, you have this solo record with dance floor bangers. You've got sort of more darkly mysterious songs like Father Figure. You, and then you have this swing song in Kissing a Fool that kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, this interlude right in the middle of it. Again, attesting to Michael's versatility as a songwriter. All right, so I guess it's my turn. Steve, I'm going to go with my number five pick here. It's Wham Rap. I'm going back to the Fantastic LP. A great story about this one as well. It's got that chorus, Wham, Bam, I Am the Man, taken directly from something Andrew Ridgely used to shout out on the dance floor in their hometown of uh, Harrow, outside of London, over Rapper's Delight. George Michael always taking notes, always taking note of things. His father told him to get out of a house and get a job. That's in the song as well. And really channeling that sort of Thatcherite Britain, uh, Steve, of 1982, 1983, where the English economy was in the tank, um, and so many young people were unemployed and trying to find their way in the world. Um, this is one of three songs in a demo. They got them signed to Intervision Records, which turned out to be the mother of all bad record deals. Uh, any you know young band often gets suckered into these bad record deals. Uh, they found their way out of it eventually and moved on to uh, CBS Columbia. But you know this this was Wham in a more dangerous phase. Uh, they actually had a bit of street cred because they were singing about the economy. They were singing about UB40 unemployment forms. Even Paul Weller kind of liked them for a minute there uh, before they went completely you know, sort of big 80s pop with Make It Big. And again, I I, I said this a couple of minutes ago, that first record has its own gems on it. I think it sometimes gets overlooked in Michael's catalog, but this is certainly you know, alongside Club Tropicana and Young Guns Go For It. You know, just a great pop song and a great dance tune. You're number five, sir. So my number five is the big one here. Going with Careless Whisper. Of course. Um, so every one of the artists that we love has one or two songs that are in the category of best songs ever written. And this is definitely one of George Michael's. I was in the parking lot of my son's school a few months ago, and I pulled into a parking space. I had the windows open. I was cranking the song. As the guy in the space next to me got out of his car, I turned down the volume in embarrassment and the guy stuck his head in my window and said, Hey man, you got to turn this song up. This song was released as a single in 1984 and became a commercial success around the world. It reached number one in at least 10 countries selling about 6 million copies worldwide, 2 million of them in the U S this was one of the songs that George wrote in his head on his many bus rides to his gig as DJ back before he and Andrew originally were signed. He worked out the song with Andrew strumming chords on his Telecaster, both at George's house and Shirley Kemp, then Shirley Holloman's aunt's basement flat where Andrew was staying. Here's an interesting thing. George Michael had to go through nine different sax players until he found the guy who could play the sax line exactly the way that he heard it in his head with all the little nuances and inflections. And that guy's name was Steve Gregory. I always wanted to know who played the sax line on that song. Now I know it was Steve Gregory. He was the ninth sax player and got the line exactly the way George wanted it. One of the best songs of all time and one of the best sax solos and sax lines as well. 
Yeah, Steve, this is a, a rare Andrew Ridgely co-write. And, and again, in his biography, uh, James Galvin notes that the royalties from Careless Whisper are basically what's been keeping Andrew Ridgely out of the poorhouse uh, for his in, for his entire life. And you know uh, what's funny? Like, whenever you see Andrew Ridgely, like, you know, on social media, and you see him, like, in a suit grocery shopping, or you see him, like, in a bathing suit on his yacht, that's Careless Whisper money. I, I, I think of that every time I see him online. Yeah, he, you know, it's like, again, half of life is showing up, as they say, and certainly Andrew Ridgely showed up at the right place and the right time. But, you know, George Michael was the new kid in their primary school, and Andrew Ridgely, you know, way back when, took him under his wing. He was a little bit cooler than George was in those days. Uh, George had curly hair, he had glasses, took him a little while to find himself personally, and then very rapidly eclipsed his friend. You know, Steve, important to remember also, The Careless Whisperer was released originally as a George Michael solo single in the UK as a way to start begin establishing him as a solo artist is released in the United States on Make It Big as a Wham song but most of the world had already known it as a George Michael solo single before it was released in the United States. That saga of trying to find the right sax player has passed into pop legend. Uh, Michael could be that meticulous. He could be that demanding. I mean, even with the Memphis and there were soul players there who got turned down, who couldn't channel what he was looking for. They finally had to return to London and, and they found the sax player there that finally nailed it. And again, you're right. One of the um, great indelible sax hooks of the uh, 1980s where you couldn't turn around without getting smacked in the head by somebody playing a tenor. Who you got on your list next? I'm going to go out, Steve. Number six um, on the first side of my tape, the only song from Make It Big to Make It On to this collection, Everything She Wants, by written, produced, and recorded by George uh, in 1985. He writes, it was the only song I've ever written that successfully came from a backing track first. He wrote the Lindrum pattern um, and found a synthesizer program that he liked. He was apparently in Paris having dinner with some friends, leaped up and said, hey, I have an idea and raced off to the studio, called in the engineers. They worked until 2 a.m. They weren't happy with what they had. Uh, when the crew came back at 10 o'clock the next morning, boom, there it was. The, the finished product, again, just an example of, of Michael's ability to alchemize a song into reality. And, you know, for me, this song is right up there with Dead or Alive, You Spin Me Right Round, just one of the best pop songs of all time. That video is just so ingrained in my mind. You know, whenever I think of George Michael, like that's the image I think of. What a fantastic song. One and of the some best. deep lyrics there as well. I mean, you've got, you know, you've got that kind of synth pop beat going, but it's really about a marriage that's in disintegration, about a, a man who's unhappy with his life and, and feeling trapped and trying to give the person in his life everything she wants, everything she needs. It was this balancing of, of sweet and sour, this balancing of, of dark and light that Michael could do really well when he was at his best. Profound lyrics from a young man. Very profound. All right, we're going to go some lightning rounds here, Steve. What do you got? Sure. I, we, we can't get through this list without mentioning Different Corner, one of the most deep-hitting, soul-wrenching songs with the extremely profound lyric, Take Me Back in Time, Maybe I Can Forget, Turn a Different Corner, and We Would Have Never Met. It's hard to listen to this song sometimes because it's so deep, too deep. This is from the final. Um, this was, again, a George Michael solo single in the UK, released domestically as a, as a Wham! song. Just so sad, so mournful. I remember I was packing to leave for college uh, 
in late August of 1988 and hearing the song and, and having my heart break along with it is the eternal soundtrack um, of that moment of my youth. What else um, you got? Oh, I got last Christmas. We can't, <laughs> we can't, you, can't, can't that. you can't go out without mentioning it. Right. It, you, and you know what no one mentions about that song is the drum programming is just so good on that song. It's a Lindrum. Right. It's, it's, it's very simple. Just snare and kick like one more try, but just so effective. One of the best Christmas songs in the top five Christmas songs. You know, they went, I remember reading about the video shoot for that. They went on vacation to like Switzerland. Yeah. Andrew and Pepsi and Shirley Martin Kemp, who was then dating Shirley Holloman was there as well. Just this like party, like, all weekend as they um as they shot that video there's now a, a radio game in the uk where you try to go the whole of the month of december without hearing last christmas oh forget it yeah and every of course it's everyone loses because the song is just omnipresent all right i'm gonna go with my quick picks steve i've got four i've got battle stations from the final i've got hand to mouth another great deep album track from faith i've got bad boys from the fantastic lp and one that i want to linger on for many here freedom 90 from lifeson without prejudice volume one um, where george famously blows up the faith jukes box and sets fire to his revenge leather jacket trying to really sort of make Another hard break uh, with the person he was before uh, that video filled with supermodels of the era, uh, Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista, Noemi Campbell. I'm probably leaving. Oh, Cindy Crawford. Cindy Crawford. I thought I was leaving somebody out. Um, they just came in there and did their thing. George Michael's not even in the video. Right. He didn't want to be in the video. Got that great piano riff to it. It's just a, it's just a hell of a song. Hey, Steve, I've really enjoyed this walk down memory lane on our respective mixtapes. But that is all the time we have for this week. I'm John. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to like, share, subscribe. Leave your comments in the comment section below. Uh, we'll be turning these tracks into Spotify playlists for you. Please make playlists of your own and share them with us. And this is Steve saying, until next time, keep it cool, keep it awesome, and keep it totally rad. <laughs>